And we're live for a, another live reading of Lost Box Strategy for the Right. I'm with Repeal of the 20th Century. Repeal, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's pretty hot today. That's yeah, all good. I live, in, I live in Florida, so the heat's just like a constant here. Yeah, it. I, I wish I lived in the South again because then I could take heat a lot better. But unfortunately, I got used to New York weather. <laughs> Uh, New York. Well, uh, let me just share the screen here. If you get right into it, um, let me just share the correct screen. Um, make sure that's casting. Get the comments section open here. Okay, so we're picking up right where we left off. Uh, do you have anything you want to say before we get into uh, get about, about anything you want to say before we get into the live reading of it? Uh, no, I I think we're. Uh... I think we're moving along very nicely, and uh, I think I've gotten what I wanted to get through so far that we've read, that being. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Um, this truce was starkly demonstrated in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Last year, simply put, when the tanks went were sent to capture Yel- 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 Yelton. Uh, Yel- okay, Yelton. Um, I am terrible at reading anything that's not like from America. Anything that's not like American-centric names or something, I just I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Yelton. They were persuaded to turn their guns around and defend Yelton, and the Russian Parliament insists insist, instead, uh, yeah, instead more broadly, is um like ah defend Yelton. The Russian Parliament instead, more broadly, it is clear the Soviet government had totally lost legitimacy and support along the public. To a libertarian, it was a particularly wonderful thing to see unfolding before our very eyes. The death of a state, particularly a monstrous one, of the Soviet Union. Toward the end, Gorby continued to issue decrees as, as before, but now no one pay attention. The once mighty Supreme Soviet Union, Soviet, Supreme Soviet continued to meet, but nobody bothered to sew up. How glorious. Anything to add? Uh... I think the only thing to really add here is I think the Soviet Union is a really great example of what I think will probably happen to the United States at mm. some point, um, whether it is because we succeed in soft secession or full on secession or, um, you know, what whatever it may be that really whatever happens to this you know american regime it's going to come from within um and that's what happens all the time with these kind of um empires with massive empires it's always crumbling under its own weight um and you can look at more than just the soviet union for that i mean the roman empire wasn't conquered by outside forces though you know, there is the argument about um, barbarian raids leading to the fall of the Roman Empire, but I don't think um, that alone did it, yeah. you know. There's a multitude of reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. anyone, I, I, my, my problem is I talk, I talk follow uh, well with lots of people, and a lot of people want to pin on one specific thing, like, like we have um, something else in the political theory, and I think with the fall of Rome, you really have to look at there's multiple things going on. You can't really pick a, thing, a specific thing and use that to pin all your political theory on that one event. Yeah, I, I mean, with these kind of things, these things don't exist in a vacuum, so it, it's never really going to be one thing. Um, so arguing over what caused it um, outside of, you know, naming a, bunch, a few things, just naming one thing is not productive. It really is what was the most devastating cause and, and it, what are the causes that are actually avoidable Yeah, and looking at that. But we still haven't solved the mystery of civil obedience. If the ruling elite is taxing, looting, and exploring the public, why does the public put up with put up with this for a single moment? Why does it take them so long to withdraw their consent? Here we come to the solution: the critical role of the intellectuals, the opinion molding class in society. If the masses knew what was going on, they would withdraw their consent quickly. But they soon perceive that the emperor has. They would soon perceive the emperor has no clothes, that they are being ripped off, and this is where the intellectuals come in. You know, I actually, I, I keep, I always. I've heard this late uh, the phrase "info has no clothes" like my entire life. Only until like two weeks ago, I actually figured out what the story was. Because <laughs> everyone, it's one of those things everyone references, but no one explains the story of what the whole story of the lesson of it was. 
So mm-hmm. it's, it's fun to actually hear it. Yeah, and, and I think he's putting a really good um, point here because I think libertarians often question to themselves, well, things are so bad. They're like, these things are so horrible. You know, why haven't we seen mass resistance or whatever? And um, that that is because the ideas are not spread wide far enough. Like, the alternative is not clear, yeah. you know? Um, it's not clear and it's not spread far enough. There isn't a lot of real implementation. This is where I like have my greatest critiques with people who think like accelerationism is the path forward. Um, Walter Block's kind of an accelerationist. Um, when I interviewed him, you know, I, I asked him about at the time it was the whole question about bums in the park. Can we remove the bums in the park? And he said, actually, the bums being in the public park is a good thing. Because then we can like demonstrate the alternative of, of private parks and being able to remove them, but people aren't thinking about that. Yeah. that. That's the problem with that argument. And so, you know, really, what you know, our guys need to do is, you know, po- both pointing out the evils of the state, but also actually imprinting these ideas um, from the intellectual space into the political. So, you know, the alternative is actually aware there, there people are aware there's an alternative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because most people are just not aware that there's an alternative. I mean, Walter wrote a whole article, I think, on the uh, why we, we don't have to allow the homeless people to sink up the library. Yeah. Like he was he was very like, I think that that's actually my favorite part of against the left. I think I I have that all all the arguments in that part screenshot on my phone. I just mm-hmm. whenever that argument comes up, I always just link to those articles because it's just, just so potent and explain what the actual libertarian resistance would be on this whole homeless people in the parks kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, Rothbard, especially later, was very much against this idea of that we can just, you know, let things get get so bad um, that eventually people will see that our way is the truth. He, he knew that was naive and honestly would probably end up with the opposite effect as we kind of see is happening in a lot of ways. I mean, just look at what happened with COVID and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're moving in a worse direction, not a better direction, even though we've had some small victories and stuff. So speaking of the intellectual, I know kind of drag out the whole point of the things a lot to say here. Um, I think the intellectual class, like, you know, molding public opinion, making it really, um, hoping to accept the state and what it does. Um, much as I wish that Sarah was more involved in the, uh, um, intellectual class and molding the opinion class, right now, when we, when I do see, uh, preachers, or especially in the, in the Bible Belt in the South, whenever the preacher talks about a government, they always say, like, I've always told them to say two things it's bad, these people are wrong. But also, you can't do anything but pray about it, which I'm not saying you should pray for the leaders. You pray to come to the centers of a tile. Um, but uh, the whole point is that you can never do anything besides pray about it. I don't encourage anything besides that. And it's like, okay, you just encourage in complacency. That's all, that's all, all the only opinion they're putting out is complacency. I, I really detest that kind of uh, attitude that is put out, specifically in the Bible Bell kind of uh, mm-hmm. pastors. And, and it wasn't always that way. I mean, if we look at the history of um, Protestantism in the United States, you know, despite all my critiques of Protestantism, um, it was an effective tool, at least the churches were effective tools in, in combating these kind of things. I mean, something I, I you know, kind of established when I wrote um, the Mises article I recently wrote a few weeks ago. I, I've mentioned this already here um, last time we did this, but I think it's topical here, too, is that um, the, the anti-war movement in the America did not start with the left. It started with preachers. Um, there were some Catholic priests, but the vast majority were, you know, your Bible Belt preachers, your your um, your Protestant priests and stuff that 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 were against the war um, on numerous grounds, religious grounds. Um, uh, practical grounds, but they were really the ones who, specifically with World War One, were leading the charge in in opposing the entrance into the war, and ultimately, um, and ultimately the the staying in the war when we did enter. 
Yeah, it was sad. It's sad to say the Protestants have been the Protestant has been subverted so much where the average Protestants and neocon wants to defend Israel when it used to be they were very anti-war people. It's it's sad to see, honestly. Mm-hmm. And that's something uh, I actually is it today at church uh, for during our coffee hour we we talked about exactly that about why Protestants, you know, defend Israel with such veal, and it, it is because Israel, uh, you know, lobbied them so hard and. Protestants have, have been subverted, and a big part of that is because, the, at the end of the day, they were the subverters. So, but um, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a whole other conversation I would love to have with you, but we got to do the live with <laughs> it. Um, but we still haven't solved the mystery of civil. Oh, here we are. Um, no, I'll read it again. But we still haven't solved the mystery of civil obedience. It's a ruling elite is taxing, looting, and exploiting the public. Why does the public put up with this for a single moment? Why does it take so long to restore their consent? Here we come to the solution: the critical role of intellectuals' um, opinion on the society. Uh, it's imagined what's going on to restore their consent quickly, but they would soon perceive that the emperor has no clothes and being ripped off. Um, this is th- that is when intellectuals come in. The ruling elite whether it be the monarchs of yore or the communist parties of today, are in desperate need of intellectual elites to weave apologies uh, for the state for state power. The state rules by divine edict. The state ensures the common good of the general welfare. The state protects us from the bad guys over the mountain. The state guarantees full employment. The state active, um, activates the multiplier effect. The state ensures social justice, and so on and so on. The apologies just... The apologies differ from over the centuries. The effect is always the same. As Carl Woodfogel shows in his great work, Oriental Despotism, an Asian, an Asian, Asian, an Asian Empire intellectuals were able to get away with the seal of the emperor. Orfeo was him, himself divine. If the ruler is God, he would be induced to uh, induced to disobey or disobey or question his commands. Yeah, as. That was one of the things that really got me when I first went to the state, probably like a year and a half ago, when he brought up the, the whole thing about um, the intellectual class saying the pharaohs and the uh, e- e- um, uh, science imports of God didn't want to oppose them. Like, I, was just, I heard that. I, like, I, had to start, I was walking in the field. I had to just kind of stop and go, okay, let me just think about that for a moment because that is mm-hmm. incredible. I mean, that was yeah. An- anatomy of the state is a real like introductory text, and I think quite a lot of it is, you know, not- Mo- a lot, I think most of it is you end up just like building upon it and it's, mm-hmm. it's very much just building blocks rather than things you'll carry with you um, constantly and, and, and yeah. continuously. But that uh, on intellectual, the whole chapter on intellectuals and, and talking about their role in statecraft. Um, I think continues on and and really is it can't be built upon much more because you know it, it is just uh, it, it just really hits hits the ballpark uh, or hits the ball out of the park yeah. and um, I, there are a few other books that I think do as well of a job of implying that I think the only one that gets close is um, the um, manufacturing consent by uh, Chomsky and another guy. A lot of people give Noam Chomsky the credit of that book, but actually it was mostly written by another guy that I'm, I always blank on his name because he's just not, he's not given the credit. Uh, Edward Herman, Edward Herman. Um, but yeah, this, that's the thing about Hopper and Rothbard is that they when you talk about intellectual class, I think that's like a very crucial segment. I, I did a live reading with uh, Sammy on, um, uh, Natural elites, intellectuals in the state, which is a, a great little pamphlet. There's a understanding understanding the effects intellect intellectual class is like a crucial part of anyone's political theory. It really needs to account for that. Yeah, um, I don't think enough uh, ideologies actually do that, though. Is the problem? <laughs> it's the same. It's the same because it's super important. It's actually one thing I really like about the NRX people is they're very good about the elites. Like they have they have that problem, but they're very good about the managerial elite and the intellectual classes, like. Curtis Yarvin's open, open letter to open minded progressive when he pulls that switch about the um, separation of church and state being a good thing, but by its own definition, where it's church is, so is Harvard. It's just a really great point. And he, Yarvin is great on that as well. So I recommend everybody go and read stuff like that from mm-hmm. the NLX people. Um, we can see that the, the state rules 
rulers get out of their life with intellectuals. But what do intellectuals get out of it? Intellectuals are the sort of people who believe that in the free in the free market, they are getting paid far less than their wisdom requires. Now the state is willing to pay them salaries, both for apartheid for state power and the modern state. Uh, for staffing and the myriad jobs in the welfare regulatory state apparatus. In past centuries, the churches constituted the executive, exclusive opinion-molding classes in the society. Hence, the importance of the state and its rulers uh, of an established church, and the importance, of libertarian, importance to libertarians of the concept of separating church and state, which really means not allowing the state to confer upon one group the monopoly of opinion-molding function. <laughs> Um, in the 20th century, of course, the church has been replaced in opinion-moding role, um, or in that lovely phrase, the engineering of consent, by a swarm of intellectuals, academics, social scientists, technocrats, pol- uh, technocrats, policy scientists, social workers, journalists, and the media, generally on and on, often included for old times' sake, so to speak, as this sprinkling of social gospel ministers and counselors from the mainstream churches. Wow. Actually, I... I um, Seen this a little bit. Separation church and state. I think that was a mistake. I think you're always yeah. gonna, you're always gonna, you're always gonna have a church versus state. You can't not have it. Uh, I was if it's always going to exist, I would prefer it be, you know, for fifty, I want to be my church going Catholic, but you probably want to be an Orthodox church or something. But yeah, uh, well, Rothbard, um, I think I think he's getting the relationship wrong here. Um, you know, what was the continually? What was the majority of society at least after the um the roman empire converted to christianity in the early church period was that basically with states the church imparted whatever religion it may be imparted the beliefs upon the state um there are some empires in asia that you can see that before the roman empire turned christian but that was the general rule post um, roman empire all across the world is that the dominating religion imparted the beliefs upon the state not the other way around where that got muddled up is particularly where um a little bit starting with um the beginning of monarchies when we went from aristocratic systems which even the roman empire and byzantine empire and stuff these were more aristocratic systems um, there was a ve- only a very short period in which the Byzantine Empire uh, had mostly centralized control. Um, and it was the worst period of the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> and, um, it, and then when we saw these monarchs, then we saw a little bit of it of imparting be- of the state imparting beliefs on the church. Um, one of those big things was the Protestant Reformation um all funded by states <laughs> yes uh but and then and then further from that especially when we came to democracies where um there were more laws passed to restrict to the church what the church can do what the church can um say and stuff like that so the problem became with opinion uh, molding was when the state was imparting beliefs on the church, not when the church was imparting beliefs on the uh, state. And I think part of this is just coming from Rothbard's an atheist. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think my, 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 one of my problems of it is his point here. Let me say, find it. Um, it's a word in certain states. Where do you put it? Um, here, and the, import, and the importance of libertarian to libertarians of the concept of separating church and state, which really means not allowing the state to confer upon one group, monopolizing the opinion moding function. I think my problem with that is that power power tends to centralize, and when you get it, when the intellectual class is a powerful position, that's going to centralize, especially when the state can centralize it and to have one people who becomes. I think it always gonna it's always gonna resort into being one kind of uh, molding intellectual class. It's always gonna resort into that one class. And you can separate the states going to somehow mark a uh, free marketize the intellectual class and the multiple people. I don't think that's true. I think it's going to centralize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. I mean, the, the the truth is is that there's always going to be uh, one or a few forces dominating um, how the culture is 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 really like broad stroke wise how the culture is going to be and and what the opinions are going to be the question is do we want those people who are doing that to be people who believe in our ideas 
and impart our values or do we want them to be people who don't? Yeah. Um. Let's see what was I got here. Okay. So to sum up, the problem is the bad guys, the ruling class, have gathered themselves unto the intellectuals and media unto themselves the intellectual media elites who are able to bamboozle the masses into consorting consenting to their rule, to indoctrinate, indoctrinate them, as democracies would say, with false consciousness, well, what can we, the right-wing opposition, do about it? One strategy, endemic to libertarians and classical liberals, is what we call a Hayekian model, after F.A. Hayek, or what I would have called the educationism. Ideas and models, ideas, the models, the model declares are crucial, and ideas filtered down a hierarchy began with top philosophers, then seeped into lesser philosophers, then academics, and finally to journalists and politicians, um, and then to the masses. The thing to do is to convert the top philosophers to the correct ideas. They would convert the lesser and so on into the kind of trickle-down effect until at last the masses are converted to liberty, uh, converted and liberty has been achieved. First, it should be noted that this trickle-down strategy is very gentle and genteel. Uh, gentle and genteel? Is that, that right? I, I believe it's genteel, yeah. Uh, genteel one. Relied on quiet medita- mediation and persuasion in the aust- I kept, um, austere. austere quarters of intellectual celebration. This strategy fits, by the way, with Hayek's personality, for Hayek was not exactly known as an intellectual gut fighter. Of course, ideas and persuasion are important, but there are several fatal, several fatal flaws in the Hayekian strategy. First, of course, the strategy at best takes several hundred years, and some of us are a bit more impatient than that. But time, by my, time is by no means the only problem. Yeah, I, I so I, I want to say, though, that, um, and Rothbard agrees with this, that that doesn't mean the strategy shouldn't be undertaken. The yeah. problem is putting... Um, all the eggs in that basket, which libertarianism ha- um, specifically has really been doing. <laughs> um, and, you know, that it, it, it's been confined to the academic spaces, especially specific academic centers like George Mason University. Um, and so it hasn't been able to really trickle down because, you know, um, there is a di- there's a disconnect there. Because the top philosophers to the lower philosophers and academics, um, that's where the concentration is. But you still need that connect into politicians and, and I guess, journalists in this case. But I don't think journalists are as necessary as, as Rothbard would suggest from this statement. Yeah. But um, the, the real disconnect there is if you're going to get to politicians – you don't actually get the politician themselves most of the time. You get their staff, you get their like chief of staff, um, their yeah. advisors, um, just basically everyone in their staff, especially um, when it comes to messaging and stuff like that. Uh, that's that's how you connect to it. So this strategy is very much missing that, and I, I didn't really see him uh, mention that too much. But um, yeah, it, and it is also a very long-term strategy. So I, I, I still think this strategy plays some part in oh, yeah. success, but the problem is we've been putting all our eggs in that basket for the most part. Absolutely, I, you I can't agree. do that if you're going to see if you want to seek success soon, and I think success at all. Yeah, no, I have to agree. I think there's a, um, there's a place for it. Absolutely, it's a place to you know go into academia and try to work from the inside. I think that's a good thing. When you know. I, I I used to argue for the like, libertarians and had their own march for the institutions, um, but that can't be the only strategy you do because it's, it's just one time. And I think he brings up later uh, the point about how um, it's, it's, it's the incentives don't work. The incentives are for states and intellectual class to get more money, and so you have to have a moral conversion, not to say for a moral conversion to people to agree with you on the morally principles. And the, the incentives work just doesn't work really well for that. So I think it just it has more problems, but I think there is a place for it. Um, uh, many people have noted, for example, mysterious blo- uh, blo- blockages of the trickle. Uh, thus, thus, most weird scientists have a very different view of such environmental questions. Has a law, has a law, um, I think, I don't know, um, then do a few left-wing hysterics, and yet somehow it is always the same few hysterics that are exclusively quoted by the media. 
The same applies to the VEX problem of inheritance and IQ testing. So how come the media inevitably skew the results and pick and choose the few leftists in the field? Clearly because the media, especially the respectable and influential media, begin and continue with a strong left liberal bias. More generally, the hierarchy and trickle-down model overlooks a crucial point. I hate to break this to you, intellectuals, academics, and the media are not all motivated by truth alone. Uh, as you have seen, the intellectual classes may be part of the solution, but they also may be the big part of the problem. For as you have seen, the intellectuals are part of the ruling class, and their economic interests as well as interests in prestige, power, and admiration are wrapped into the pres- present welfare slash warfare state system. Yeah. I, I think here is where he begins to also, you know, expose that not Hayek is very naive. Um, that is what I've noticed every, every time I read him is he's very naive. He has a very strong sense of, you know, he wants things to be good and moral. Um, but the truth is, is that um, at least when it comes to the elites in society, uh, they don't hold these same beliefs. Yeah. These people are evil. Um, you know, Hayek has done some of the worst damage to the liberty movement in that he has convinced people that it is incompetence alone that causes government failures and, and all the bad things they do. And um, that really is is one of the main crux behind the argument. Because if we look at who's actually who did undertake this theory, um, this strategy, and succeeded, um, the Straussians, who do control politics, they acknowledge that the reality is that they actually don't seek truth and have used this to their advantage to be behind the scenes of the actual political actors. So, you know, the politicians, chiefs of staff, the advisors, so on, they've bridged that gap because, you know, like Leo Strauss, um, who started... um, Straussianism, uh, obviously, he, if I remember correctly, he, he had no position in, in politics. He was just like a philosopher, but his ideas uh, imparted because he passed down to people who became chiefs of staffs, who became, you know, these these behind the scenes political actors. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's what, you know, the Hayekians are missing. Um, the Hayekians, <laughs> the Friedmanites. It, which is yeah. strange for the Friedmanites because the Friedmanites, even Milton Friedman himself, some of them have become political advisors. They've just been very ineffective political yeah. advisors. Yep. Remind me, uh, eventually, when we're doing this live reading, I need we need to find something about Leo Strauss to cover or a book <laughs> on Leo Strauss or something. Because you, you brought up Trice now, I'm, I'm getting more interested in his ideas. We need to do a Leo Strauss stream or something because I think he, he seems very he seems to be very influential. And so I would like to cover more more of his stuff. I, I know Godfrey has a book on him. We might have to do that book or something. Yeah, it, Strauss and Straussianism, and um, these are two things that uh, if you want to win in politics, you should be looking at what he's saying. Not definitely not agreeing with everything he says, but looking at what he did and and what was successful of his, because I mean they, they are just objectively in control. I mean, <laughs> political scientists will admit this. Uh, Straussians will admit this. Um, you know, they don't do it as, as publicly because one, people don't know who they are, and two, they um, what do you call it? They uh, part of their strategy is is avoiding you know being known. But if you go to like your political science department, you'll find that the majority of them are probably Straussians. And then if you ask them, um, are Straussians in charge? They will say yes. Yeah. Look confident. <laughs> they know what they know what they are. Yeah. Mm. They it's they know that they're among well, it maybe not with you you know, you asking, but they know they're they're among company and there's nothing you asking will really do. Yeah. You know are you having that knowledge, um, at least in the short term, uh, for them is viewed as that you won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite impressive. Therefore, in addition to converting intellectuals to the cause, the proper course for right-wing opposition must necessarily be a strategy of boldness and confrontation. Uh, di- uh, diamondism? Di- I know, I know what he's trying to say. I, just, I, I can read it, but I can't pronounce it. Um, I, I can't do it either. So, <laughs> uh, 
diamond, uh, we'll move past it, uh, an excitement, a strategy in sort of rousing the masses from their slumber and exposing the arrogant elites that are ruling them, controlling them, and taxing them and ripping them off. Yeah. Uh, I, again, this is um, where the specifics of the strategy for the right really start to develop in here. Um, he's completely right about, you know, bold strategy and, and confrontation being the way. And how do we know that this is true? Well, where are the two places where right-wingers and specifically libertarians are succeeding the most? It's Florida and New Hampshire. And what have Florida and New Hampshire been doing? They've been extremely bold. They've been extremely confrontational. Um, you know, they're constant. Um, New Hampshire is not as much in the news, but it, it is for, you know, local politics around there. Like the, 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 the free state project became a name, you know, it went from, you know, this niche online thing that no one's heard of to the, the scariest thing, the left fears in New Hampshire. Um, and, and these places are a, objectively some of the best places to live in the country um especially as you know viewing it from a right-wing or libertarian perspective and they were did it by being bold and confrontational mm -hmm. you know um i i know i know people who run in new hampshire and and they won their elections through this strategy like they there were times i was like ooh, you know even i cringed a little at, at what they were saying because it was like oh that might not that might hurt them but you know their internal research showed that it actually helped them a lot and it put them ahead and you know they were yeah. able to get elected yes yeah, i want to remind me of seeing i'm playing with trump lately which is so bringing this part i think with trump because trump really was bold and he he shook things up and was computational and it's something uh too that kind of like I guess people knew this because Watts wrote about it in the 90s, but it seemed like Trump kind of so showcased, hey, this could work. And it seems to be uh, very hopeful for a lot of people nowadays, which I'm, I'm glad to see. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, like, is, um, not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, it doesn't, doesn't make a South Park reference. Uh, I would say I would do it. Um, in South Park, there's an episode where um, Mr. Garrison is Trump. He's basically being Trump. And when he's doing the debate with Hillary, it is like hilariously confrontational, and I'm not going to quote it because I'm not keeping a clean little stream. Um, but if anyone wants to see him hilarious, go watch the South Park debates because uh, he is just super confrontational in a very stupid way, but it's 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 hilarious. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I I would have loved to see Rothbard live through Trump mm. presidency and write about it. Um, I'm sure great. he would have some great things to say but oh yeah i, I, I like to think that if was around now he'd have me he, he would have memes in his articles <laughs> i think that would be the case <laughs> probably <laughs> um although alternative right-wing strategy is that is that commonly put is that commonly pushed by many libertarians or conservative think tanks that is the quiet persuasion, not in the growth of academia but in washington dc in the court of the power this has been called the fabian strategy with think tanks issuing reports calling for a 2% cut in tax here, a time drop in regulation there. Um, but supporters of this strategy often point out, the supporters of this strategy often point out the success of the Fabian Society, which is, um, which by, which by its detailed empirical resources, gently pushed the British state into a gradual uh, assertion of socialist power. The flaw here, however, is that the work to increase state power does not work in reverse. For the Fabians, they were gently nudging the ruling elites precisely in the direction they wanted to travel anyway. Nudging the other way was strong against the state's grain, and the result is far more likely to be the state's co-opting and favorizing the think tankers themselves, rising the other way around. This sort of strategy may, of course, be personally and very pleasant to the think tankers, and may be profitable in cushy jobs and contracts from the government, but that is precisely the problem. Cato Institute. Um... Yeah, I, I every time I read this, I think Cato Institute, and I wonder why Rothbard didn't mention them, because while the Cato Institute wasn't as bad as it is now, I mean, Rothbard had, at this point had been kicked out of the Cato Institute. Um, the Cato Institute had already began to show some of its left wing um, underbelly and, 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 and um, that it was being, you know, Fabianized. And so I, I wonder why he left it out. Um it's possible he left it out for the sake of 
he pro- I, I think he believe I believe he still knew people afterward, and I don't think he. There's not a lot of him going after Cato Institute besides some letters, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like this is just Cato Institute. Cato Institute um, Heritage Foundation wasn't libertarian, but it was you know conservative. Um, all these like Beltway type of groups, they just they just end up being appropriated into the greater you know state apparatus of nudging them further along where they already want to go. And that, I mean, that's why the Fabian Society was successful because it was kind of just riding the current. Um, so it wasn't really successful in itself. Um, and, it, and it didn't even accomplish its goals, actually. Most of its goals never, ever actually got accomplished, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Britain definitely got nudged more into greater concentration of state power, but not the kind of state power the Fabians wanted, you know, because they were hardcore socialists, communists. And um, I, I would not argue that the United Kingdom is like a hardcore socialist or <laughs> communist state. Um in some ways, they're more capitalist than us. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I would not argue that. Obviously, in other ways, they <laughs> definitely are not. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, yeah. But, that, but that is precisely the problem. It is, it is important to realize that the establishment doesn't want excitement in politics. It wants the masses to continue to be low to sleep. It wants kinder. It wants kinder. doesn't look. It wants to measure judiciousness, mercy tone, and content of James Wynn, a David Border, or a Watson Weekend Review. It doesn't want a Pat Buchanan, not only for the excitement and hard edge of this content, um, but also for the similar tone and style. And so the proper strategy for the right wing must be what could be called right wing populism. Exciting, dynamic, tough, and confrontational. Wildly inspiring not only the extorted masses, but the often self-stocked right-wing intellectual um, charade. Has, is that saying that right? Charade? Which one is that? Called it. Um, C-A-D-R-E. I don't, I don't know what that word is. Cater, I believe, maybe? I'm not sure. I'm not always the best at pronouncing words Same. as well. <laughs> Same. Yeah. So. <sighs> Has well, has well, and in this area, when intellectual and media elites are all establishment liberal conservatives, all in a deep sense of one variety one or another, a social democrat, all bitterly hostile to a Zinian right. We need a dynamic, charismatic leader who has the ability to sort circuit the media elites and to reach and rouse the masses directly. We need a leadership that can reach the masses and cut through the crippling and distorting hermeneutical fogs by by the media elites. Uh, I am a, I am currently a fan of populism. That being said, uh, I know Academic Asia has a new book out on against populism. That I'm, I have come in the mail. I'm going to read it. Um, I don't know what my views on populism will be after that. Um, but I, I think currently populism seems like a good way to go forward. But I don't – that might change in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with a lot of things, it's a kind of um, exercise some caution here. Um because, you know, at the end of the day, populism is a, a tool and some people kind of adopt it as an ideology when it is not an ideology. It is a yeah. political strategy and tool. So it's a kind of a be careful kind of thing or tread lightly. Um, I think populism in a lot of ways is is a way to go. Um, I'm a big believer in that that. Um, you know, we're going to need a multi-pronged strategy. And I think one of those prongs will most likely be populism to some extent. And I mean, um, as, you know, um, Rothbard kind of explains uh, about, you know, mentioning Patrick Buchanan and then, and, um, uh, sorry, and mentioning Patrick Buchanan is that really we need, you know, that leadership um, from somebody. We need that next uh patrick buchanan that next ron paul um hopefully one that will be successful this time and by successful i mean actually like win the election i get that ron paul and patrick buchanan were successful in like turning people but um at the end of the day we need people who win you know not just get us close to victory we need to win 
Um, so we need another one of those for this generation. Who that is? I don't know. So bis- so bis- up. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't think you have a one, but I want to be opposed to it. You know, I I am open to the idea of DeSantis being that person. You know, DeSantis has been show. You know for the most part good on a lot of things and he had he's starting to surround himself with people who are good and and people who you know are on our side are starting to influence him more and it's having an effect yeah tom woods at a, a covid meeting so he's, yeah. he's getting the right people exactly and, and and so you know desantis could possibly be that person yeah my um, problem is he's a fluidian yeah. i don't want i don't want him to leave no um, i i i I get that mentality. I'm not a Floridian, but I actually want him to stay in in Florida at least yeah. for right now, until we fix some you know positions that he holds that I think are really bad, and also ensure that he's insulated from what happened to Trump, where he was surrounded with enemies, um, with you know Straussians in his cabinet um, who you know turned him against what he really ran on, um, but. Yeah, he he'll do a lot more good in Florida than he can on the national level in the current state. Okay. Um, this is like, uh, Pen, uh, Pen, I don't know about that, or what Um, having Ryan on Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe and watch for that. That's gonna be a fun one. But um, okay, back to the reading. Um, here it is. Um. But can we call such a strategy conservative? I, for one, am tired of the liberal strategy of which they have um, run the charges for 40 years. Uh, of presuming to define conservatism has, suppo- has a supposed aid to the conservative movement. Whether liberals have encountered hard-edged abolitionists who, for example, have wanted to appear the New Deal or the Fair Deal, they say. They say, but that's not genuine conservatism. That's radicalism. The genuine conservative, these liberals go on to say, doesn't want to appeal about anything. He's a kind of gentle soul who wants to conserve what uh, left liberals have accomplished. Uh, the left liberal version, then, of good conservatism is as follows. First, left liberals in power make a great leap forward towards, a, towards collectivism. Then, when the course of the political cycle, four or eight years later, conservatives come to power, they, of course, are horrified at the idea of appealing anything. They simply slow down the rate of growth of statism. State, the rate mm, slow down the rate of growth of statism, um, consolidating the previous gains of the left and providing a bit of R and R for the next liberal great, great leap forward. But if you think about it, you will see that these this is precisely what every Republican administration has done since the New Deal. Conservatives have, have readily played the desired Santa Claus in the liberal version of history. Michael knows as much as I dislike a lot of his stuff. He has a great term for it. He calls them uh, court zestral conservatives. They're just there to just be court zestral. That's, that's what they're there for. And it, it's a good term, I think. I, I think, yeah, I think conservatives aren't the only ones who have, you know, played this full kind of thing. I think, um, you know, even libertarians to some extent, there's actually, uh, in fact, I would say libertarians have the greatest examples of, of court jester libertarians who just exist to, you know, make libertarianism look worse. I think the Libertarian Party, for the most part, in the past few years has been just exactly that. Whether that'll change um, this coming week uh, at the next LP convention, um, I'm not too optimistic about, but yeah. we'll see. Absolutely, it, it, it's. I'm not. I'm not a fan of Mises Caucus strategy, and I'm coming to be less and less a fan of Mises Caucus themselves. Because they get, they seem to get more and more power. They seem to become more and more aggressively autistic about their strategy. And it's just like I, I, I like, I, I like Zoss. He seems like a great dude, but I, I, the rest of them, I'm not so sure. I think are, these are the kind of people I think once they get any amount of power, they're not going to become like. Power purifies, and if they're already not great, they're going to become worse. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence that the Mises Caucus itself has been subverted to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I still, there's still people I like in the Mises Caucus, of course. Yeah. Um, but the current product we have and the product that's now being promised. Um, even just now changing close to when they're going to Reno uh, is not the product that was uh, promised to me. I was talking about this with Marcel in a Twitter space. Uh, 
the other day and and this exact thing is where you know people towards the top in the Mises caucus were giving us a very different picture than the picture we're getting right now yeah no like my my I had a tweet a while ago that kind of blew up that I might have to I'm gonna bring it up again it's like this week next weekend or this this coming weekend is that Every time the Mises Caucus took over somewhere, they always would be like, hey, you guys can stick around. We'll give you a position of power here. They, they would take over a position and then leave the people who were terrible in some position of power store. They never took scalps. They never kicked people out. And they just let the people who were terrible stay here and continue to subvert. Yeah, Look I mean, I... Was that libertarian boss baby dude who was like, we need to test vaccines on Sildwin? He's a Mises Caucus guy. He's clearly a progressive leftist. Yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> I, I, the, the picture that once was, uh, you know, painted to me, um, about it was like that scene, um, from death of Stalin with the lists and the removing of people. That's what I was imagining. And in the picture that was communicated to quite a few people who are now skeptical of the Mises caucus or, or straight up hostile to it, um, that's what was communicated to us and that's not really what's happening obviously yeah. it, it feels very much like the 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 subversion that happens to you know like the cato institute and in these beltway types yeah. so i heard i went somewhere about libertarian parties it's, it's currently really funded by three major donors and two of them want to step out the moment the, the moment it means the caucus takes over so they're going to take over a party that already has no power and lose whatever take over a party that has no power not kick out people who make it terrible and then lose less funding. I don't see how any of this results in a winning strategy for anybody. <laughs> and it says there's so many great people that like, stake their entire like brand on the music caucus. And I'm like, that's just not, that's just kind of sad to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, we were, we're not exactly moving in the, I don't think they're exactly moving in the right direction at the moment, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask how long are we going to keep being suckers? How long will we keep playing our appointed roles in the scenarios of the left? Um, when are we going to stop playing the game and start throwing over the table? I must admit that in one sense, the liberals have had a point. The word conservative is unsatisfactory. The original right never used the term conservative. They called ourselves we call ourselves individualists or true liberals or writers. The word conservative only served the board as a publication of Russell Kirk's highly influential conservative mind in 1953 and the last years of the original right. There are two major problems with the word conservative. First, that is indeed connotes conserving the status quo, which is precisely why the um, Brezhnev writes were called conservatives in the Soviet Union. Perhaps there was a case for calling us conservatives in 1910, but certainly not now. When he wants to uproot the status quo, not conserve it. And secondly, the word conservative harks back to struggles in 19th century Europe and and in America, conditions and institutions have been so different that the term is seriously misleading. There's a strong case here, as in other areas, for what has been called American exceptionalism. Uh, what should we call ourselves? I haven't got an easy answer, but Perhaps we should call ourselves radical reactionaries or radical writers. The labor was given to our given to us by the 1950s. Or if there is too much objection to the dreaded term radical, we can fall to the of some some of our group to call ourselves the hard right. Any of these terms is preferable to conservative, and it also serves the function of separating ourselves from the official conservative movement, which, as I said, no one meant, has been largely taken over by our enemies. I 100% agree with him on this. The term conservative is one, the conservative movement sucks. Two, it, it, it notes terrible ideas what conservatives actually used to be about. It, it's just, it's it's a terrible word. The only time it's ever been used is if you put paleo before it, because that's the part, that's the part Goff would use But it's just, it's not a good term. I, I like to, I do like the term reactionary because we are reacting against everything that the, the left is pushing. What do you yeah, say? I mean, I mean, cons- conservatism is a is a dead word. Um, you know, it, it if you are a conservative in the sense that you want to conserve the current society, you are my enemy. That it's clear as day, you are my enemy. If you even want to conserve. Uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 20th century. Yeah. If you want to conserve the 20th century, if you want to conserve the new deal, any of these things, you are part of the problem. And, um, 
you know, the, that that is why the right, you know, really needs to just kind of reject the the, the conservative idea and and embrace some kind of radical right. Call it what you want, paleo conservative to libertarianism. Call it just libertarianism, whatever you want to call it. Um, whatever we must call it, you know, conservative is no longer apt term, um, you know, and and it is it is a, a defensive position only when you need mm-hmm. to be offensive in, in this fight. Um, so absolutely. We got 10 minutes left. Let's try to get to a little bit more of this. OK. Um, it is in. Instructive to turn now to prior in the case of right-wing populism headed by dynamic leaders, by the dynamic leader who appeared in the last years of the words in the right, and whose advent indeed marked the resistance between the original and newer Buckleyite right. Quick now, who um who was the most hated and most mirrored American um man in American politics in this century? Who hated and more pun. American public in the century, more hated and more reviled than even David Duke, even though he was not a Nazi or a Ku Kluxer. He was a li- not a libertarian. He was not an isolationist. He was um, not even a conservative, but in fact was a moderate Republican, and yet he was so unnecessarily reviled that his very name became generic, became generic dictionary synonym for evil. I refer, of course, to Joe McCarthy. The key to the McCarthy phenomenon was the comment made by the entire political culture from moderate left to moderate right. We agree with McCarthy's goal, we just disagree with his means. Of course, McCarthy's goal were the usual ones absorbed from the political culture, the alleged necessity of raising war against international communist conspiracy theory, conspiracy, whose ten, uh, tentacles reached from the Soviet Union and spanned the entire globe. McCarthy's problem and Ultimately, his tragedy is that he took his stuff seriously. If commerce and the agents and fellow travelers were everywhere, then shouldn't we, in the midst of the Cold War, root him out of American political life? I'm going to throw some ignorance here. I don't know who McCarthy is. Really? Yeah. My, my political history, anything really of like, eight, some like 70s to 20, 2010 is a gap in my political knowledge. So McCarthy is an interesting uh, case because... You you probably will it probably will kick in because everybody learns this in like U.S. history, I think even world history will touch on it. But um, McCarthy was really the guy who really kicked off the Red Scare, um, and the way he did it is he began saying that there were communists among our politicians, there were communists among our media, there were communists among the academics. And that there was a global uh, communist conspiracy to subvert all nations and to d- destroy all nations and to make them all communists and part of the Soviet Union. And he believed that all these people were Soviet spies. Um, and so he created the um, Committee on um, American Affairs, I believe, which was to investigate. I, I have heard about that one. Yeah, to investigate whether or not someone was a communist or had um, allegiances with communists. Um, He created the blacklisting of people who were known associates of communists, um, which unfortunately did not work very well. Um, And and all these kinds of things. Uh, But at the end of the day, he actually was pretty much a moderate conservative um, he was a lot, he was above a lot of other moderate conservatives, I would say, but still he was, um, but he's a really good case study for this bold kind of, uh, attacking your enemies and, and beating them down with the institutions, with you can, um, it, but on, in the end of the day, he was very unsuccessful, but he was right. He was vindicated. He was completely correct that many of these people were communists. Most of them were not Soviet spies. They were homegrown communists, um, though I think uh, a few Soviet spies were found, including um, one big one that was released was uh, I think it was um, actually the World Economic Forum um, and, and one of the big. And one of the guys who made the Bretton Woods system with Keynes uh, was actually a Soviet spy all along. Wow. The FBI admitted this many years later that actually, yes, uh, the evidence suggested and, and we found the evidence that this person was actually a Soviet spy. Um, 
So, you know, McCarthy was vindicated. He was completely right about all these people. Um, the big contention from leftists now and then people looking back is that he was mean. He was mean. And he, 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 he brought the rats from out under the cupboard. Um, and the rats didn't like that very much. Hmm. Here we got five minutes. I'm going to try to be a little bit more if I can. Okay. Um, oh, where was it? The uniqueness and the gloriousness, glories, glo- gloriousness saying about McCarthy was not his goals with ideology, but precisely his radical populist means. For McCarthy was able to, for, for a few years, to circuit the intense opposition of all the elites in American life, from the Eisenhower, Rockefeller administration to the Pentagon and military-industrial complex to liberal and left media and academic elites. To overcome all the opposition and reach and inspire the masses directly, he did, and he did it. Uh, through television and without any real movement behind him. He had only a guerrilla band of a few advisors, but no organization, no infrastructure. Fascinatingly enough, the response of the intellectual elites to the specter of McCarthyism was led by liberals such as Daniel Bell and Seymour Martin Lipset, who are now prominent neoconservatives. For in this era, the neocons were in the midst of their long march, which was to take them from Trotskyism to right-wing Trotskyism, to right-wing social democracy, and finally to the leadership of the conservative movement. At this stage, the Hegarian hmm, neocons was Truman, Humphrey, Scoop, Jackson, liberals. The major intellectual response to McCarthyism was a book called, edited by Daniel Bell, The New American Right. Later, updated and expanded to the radical right, published in a time when McCarthyism was long gone and was necessary to combat a new menace to John Burt society. The basic message was to divert attention from the content of radical right's message and direct attention instead to a pessimist means um, of a group on the right. Kind of like how uh, Mark, what Marx did and Marxists did. Means what about social media? They never debate you, they would just smear you instead. Hmm. Well, we got three minutes to talk about that and then give you plugs and we'll go from there. So, yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, really, where we we'll, at least the parts of what we read show that, um, at that really where the strength has been coming from, um, in political success is these populist means, uh, these. Um, radical messaging and confrontational strategy is what works best. Um, you know, you can still incorporate um, some other uh, <clears throat> strategies, the previous mentioned ones, um, but putting all our eggs in those baskets has proven that they don't work. Um, but also just that we have to be careful of the... Uh, easy subversion uh as what happened to the old right with the new right um you know that's where he was going into with that last little bit um about trotskyism and the trotskyite to neokine pipeline um you know with william f buckley especially who was you know he was a trotskyite in college um and there are many other examples of it um i mean straussianism in itself is also just basically a, a, a continuation of Trotsky ideas. Um, but yeah, I, I think really Rothbard here gets it right for, for the most part on strategy and in, in looking back at what worked and applying Absolutely. it to what we can do now. Absolutely no. I think you're right. I think also you only have... Uh, uh, I think we can get the rest of it done one more episode. We might want a little over an hour next time to wrap it up, but I think we'll only have one more episode. So make sure everyone like, comment, share, subscribe. Make sure you stay, stick around because you're going to want to redefine a part of this strategy for the right. Uh, repeal the 20th Century, where, where can people find you at? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Repeal the 20th. Um, also on Facebook, Repeal the 20th Century. YouTube, Repeal the 20th Century. Spotify, Repeal the 20th Century. Substack, Repeal the 20th Century. And um, uh, you can find all my... It, it, specifically, if you go to the Substack, you'll find everything I do. Everything I do gets 
onto Substack at some point. Um, so you'll kind of be able to get everything. So if you're only going to subscribe to one, subscribe to Substack. But also, you know, please do subscribe to or follow me on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, and then uh, any of my other platforms if you want. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, this is another episode of Face, Liberty, and Practice. This is Season 2, Episode 1. No, Episode 2. Episode 1 was recorded yesterday, uh, which is still behind a paywall on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, go to my Patreon. It's in the little uh, banner at the bottom. Support me. Um, as Peter Kreef says, I am an intellectual prostitute. Pay me for my work. All right, everybody. Have a good night.